Thank you, Sally. My name's Gracie Aronofsky. Hi, everybody. Hi, Grace. Truly, by the grace of God, I am a member of the Al-Anon family groups. Preston Group in Dallas is my home, and I happen to think it's the finest Al-Anon group in the country. And if you don't think yours is, do something about it. And I tell you that from my own personal experience, which we'll talk about in my story. Before I get started, I want to thank Barbara, and I want to thank the committee for allowing me to be a part of this weekend. You all are something else, my word. Not At 9 o'clock this morning when Keith got started, this room was full, and it still is. And this is not always the way early in the morning, first of all, and particularly for an Al-Anon. There must be a lot of sick people in this room. <laughs> And if you are, you're in the right place, let me tell you. Ken kicked it off last night with just a lot of laughter and a lot of dead seriousness. And, of course, Harriet, one of my most favorite people, so beautiful and a woman drunk, is very important in my life, <clears throat> which you will hear. And, of course, David and I feel like Keith is one of our own kids. We've crossed paths many times, and he's very dear. And you all heard his message this morning, and it was powerful. So up until now, it's been great. That's all I can say. <laughs> Do we have any alcoholics in the room? Raise your hand. <laughs> you know, we're outnumbered, kids. And I just want you all to know, you drunks, that if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> I wouldn't need to be here, but I know where I'd be. I'd be out looking for somebody to fix. Because those of us who love the alcoholic are always trying to put something or somebody back together until we get here and find out we're incapable of it. And now you talk about an ego deflator, that'll do it. Since April of 1967, it has not been necessary for me to plan a murder or a suicide. <laughs> And let me tell you something, if the program works for me, it'll work for anybody, because that's the way I was. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado, and I grew up in a very fine home, not a dysfunctional, I hate that word, home. Normal parents, whatever normal is. It was normal to us. Dad and mother didn't drink, they lived for their family, for their children, an older brother, a younger brother. <clears throat> Pardon me, and me. We had a lot of fun. We did things as a family. We had a mountain a home up in the mountains in Colorado. We went up there all the time. We had a lot of fun in the summertime. We had a lot of fun in the wintertime just doing things. Our home was home to all of my friends and all of my brother's friends. They were always welcome. And when I got to you people many years later and got into steps four and five, and I was told to go back as far as I could go back, and I did. And I couldn't find anything unpleasant, unhappy, disastrous, or any of those mind-boggling things that many find until I ran headlong into a budding alcoholic as a teenager. That's when all the difference started, I thought. I graduated from high school at age 16. I went on to the University of Colorado. I didn't go to get an education. Went to have a good time. And I also went to find him, that man that I started fantasizing about in junior high school. Because I discovered boys in junior high school, I discovered I liked them better than I did girls, and at this age I still do. 
don't think there's anything wrong with that. But he was going to be six foot four. He was going to be an all-American football player. And he and I were going to go through life doing all the things that Gracie ever wanted to do. And I think he might be in here somewhere. If he is, please stand up on a chair, honey, so they can see you. Are you here, David? I don't know where he's sitting. I can't see without my glasses, but he's not sitting. He never does. He stands. Anyway, I got up to university and was having a good time, and a classmate of mine was from Dallas, Texas, and it was December 1941, and many of you are old enough and many of you are not to remember what happened in that period of time. For those of you who are not old enough, you've read about it in your history books, and we were in World War II. And we gals on campus were absolutely terrified. The, the hysteria was unbelievable. It was a bit like it was a little over a year ago when we were in the desert war. But I think even more so, we thought we were going to be annihilated in all of the imaginary things that run through our minds. And of course, I probably was the most hilarious, hysterical person on campus because I thought all the guys were going to go. They were all going to be on active duty. They were all going to go to war. They weren't coming back. And this 17-year-old was going to be left an old maid. And let me tell you, that was a lot to worry about back then. And this classmate of mine invited me to spend the Christmas holidays with her family in Dallas. And Dad and Mother allowed me to make the trip. And on the train going down, she said to me, you'll be going out with my brother's best friend. Go out with him. Have a good time. Just don't believe anything he says. And you know it didn't occur to me to question what she was talking about because I told you I was 17 I thought I knew everything there was to know about everything, and I want you to know I didn't know anything about anything. My peer group was extremely naive. We, are not, we were not like the young people are today. You know, they advertise on television today about things that we didn't even know to talk about. But what we did was pretend. We pretended to know all kinds of stuff, and we'd make up what we didn't know. So it didn't occur to me that there wasn't anything I couldn't cope with or anything I couldn't handle, and that didn't occur to me until I got to you, believe it or not. We got off of the train in Dallas, Texas, and there was a little guy standing there, all five foot six of him. And he took us to my friend's home, and that evening we went out, and we went out every evening for the next two weeks. Now, you know we didn't go anywhere. Didn't know that till I got to you. <laughs> We drove to a little drive-in a few blocks away from my friends that served beer and ale in the car, and he introduced me to ale. And I sat in that car, and I drank that rotten stuff, and I still say to this day, it's the worst stuff I have ever put in my mouth. I pretended to like it. I thought it was just wonderful. Ugh. Anyway, we sat in the car, and we lied to each other. Now, you have to understand, this young man was three years older than I, and he still is, of course. And he was a big man on campus at Southern Methodist University, told me he was. He told me all kinds of wonderful things about himself, and I was just awestruck. We'd go back to my friends, and he'd pick me up the next night, and this went on. And at the end of two weeks, I went back to school, and I went back with heart palpitations, and I went back knowing full well that something was going to come of this, because, you see, what I had started was what we learn in this program is manipulation. Now, I didn't know I was a manipulative person, 
But, oh, my, I had been manipulating ever since childhood. Didn't know that either till I got to the fourth step. But I had manipulated my parents, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, you name it, anybody that came around. Gracie always got what Gracie wanted. And that's a pretty bad lot in life, let me tell you, when you're going to be living with an alcoholic, particularly. I wrote to this young man knowing he felt exactly the same way I did, and I didn't hear from him. And I wrote him a second time, and there was no response, and by now I didn't need him. Campus had become military. Boulder was military. Denver was. We were surrounded. Wyoming was. You name it. We were completely surrounded. And there were about ten fellas to every gal. And let me tell you something. I had a ball. I had an absolute blast. It was exciting. It was a wonderful time. It was a fun time. And I started falling in love. Golly, I'd fall in love and he'd get shipped out. And then someone would be there to take his place and I was falling in love again and again and again. And then a letter arrived inviting me to come back to Dallas to be in a wedding and I couldn't wait to get there because this young man was going to be in the same wedding. He met the train. We went through all of the wedding parties and things that you do for a big formal wedding and we went right back to that drive-in. We drank that ale and we sat in that car and we lied to each other. And I went back to school in two weeks, and I went back and I wrote to him. And You see, the reason that I was so vitally interested, and I know that today, in this young man, is that he was not going to be going into the military for some time. He was going to be allowed to finish his education. And I already had it figured out in this wonderful mind of mine that by the time he finished all of his learning, war would be over. He would be a professional man and I'd have my life all worked out. We are good at fantasizing, aren't we? I wrote to him and I didn't hear from him. And I didn't need him. My military was there, of course, in force, and I was having a ball, having an absolute ball, still falling in and out of love every time one would go out, another one would take his place. And then a letter to go back to Dallas to be in another wedding. He was gonna be in the wedding. He met the train. We went through the wedding party. We went back to the drive-in. We drank that ale. We sat in that car and we lied to each other. <laughs> the end of two weeks, I went back to school, and this time I went back with a fraternity pin with plans to be married some two and a half years away. And that was in January. In April, a ring arrived in the mail on June the 10th, 1943, 8 o'clock p.m., a formal wedding surrounded by family, friends, the realization of a dream, not only for me, but for my family and people who cared, and everything was going to be beautiful, and everything was going to be wonderful. We left the reception in Dad's car to go for a brief honeymoon in the mountains. Dave only had three days and until uh, he had to be back in school, and we drove approximately four blocks away from that reception to the first liquor store that we could get to. Because, you see, this sophisticated young man and this know-it-all gal standing here were terrified. And there was no way that wedding could be consummated without help. And we got it in that bottle of liquid gold. I crawled in that bottle with that man that night, and I was to stay there with him for the next 24 years. And for the next 24 years, I was to drink with him, I was to drink without him, I was to drink alone, and I was to drink with other people. And I know standing here right this instant that it is only by the grace of God that I'm not an alcoholic. I am firmly convinced, and this is my own belief, you're free to agree or disagree with anything I have to say, because aren't we blessed we don't have any authorities in this program? 
you know, we'd have disintegrated a long time ago if there had been the case. Everybody would have wanted to be president. I am firmly convinced you can't make one out of one that isn't one it's that simple. You see, alcohol never did too with informing what it does for the problem drinker. If I had too much, it made me drunk. If I had too, too much, it made me sick. And there's nothing more unpleasant than a woman drunk who is sick or crying and, oh God, I was good at that. I was good at that. If I was in a poor me mood, it was weep so I could get attention. Unbelievable. I did not like alcohol. I don't like it to this day. I opted out a long time ago. And if I never smell it or see it or have another drink in my life, it's okay. Because you see, I, thank God, don't have that in me that the problem drinker has. We went back to Dallas after three days in the mountains and they went back to school and I went to work and we had everything going for us that any young couple could ever hope or want. We didn't have much money. We didn't need much money. We had everything we needed. And we had fun. And every time we had a few dollars ahead, we bought a bottle. And every time we bought a bottle, he drank too much. And every time he drank too much, I was furious. Little did I realize that I was powerless over alcohol and that my life was unmanageable almost 49 years ago. I had no idea that that was my problem. Dave finished his education. He was serving a residency in one of our local hospitals, and I had a little apartment, a little one-room apartment just a couple of blocks away. He had to live in at the hospital, and he'd get a weekend pass once a month, and this particular weekend, he was off, and we were going to a fraternity dance, and of course we never went to a party that we didn't carry our own. We had brown bag laws back then, package laws. You, we didn't have open bars. You had to carry your own, and we had our little paper sack with our bottle in it, and he drank too much, and we had to leave the party early, and we got home, and my apartment was at the very top of a very steep stairwell, very steep. And I had to get behind him to keep him from falling when we got home. And just as we got to the top of the landing, which wasn't much larger than this podium, believe me, he passed out. And for one fleeting instant, you know what I thought about doing? <laughs> you do. And it would have been so easy because I had been an athlete all of my life. And all I would have had to do was pick up one foot. And he'd have gone head over down those stairs and I'd have been free. Well, you know, I didn't do it. I drug him in by his heels, left him passed out on the floor. When he came to the next morning, he wanted to know what happened. And I looked at him with all the anger and all the resentment and all the hate that I could muster. And I said, guess, and turned my back. I couldn't stand, could not stand the results of alcohol within him. Little did I realize when I got to you people and read step two and started to put it to work in my life came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That normal people, sound thinking people, don't think the thoughts I thought that night when he passed out at the top of that landing. That just isn't it. It just doesn't get it. I thought it was perfectly okay. 
He didn't finish his residency. He was called to active duty with the United States Navy. He was declared an officer and a gentleman. And uh, there are mistakes made every day. And I was able to go with him. We had fantastic duty. It was all West Coast duty. Started at Treasure Island in Northern California and ended up Coronado Naval Air Station in Southern California aboard an aircraft carrier. Again, we had everything going for us that any two people could ask for. We were young. We were happy. We had now had more money than we'd ever had, and you know what we did. We partied. We played. We drank. We fought, and we made up. And it was always so darn much fun making up that you forget the rotten, nasty, ugly things you say to one another the night before. And you go on, and you just keep on, and you keep on. Because, you see, little did we realize that we were beginning to deal with an insidious disease called alcoholism. That we were going to be living in a situation that doesn't ever get better, that it only gets worse because alcoholism is a progressive illness. What we did was blame. I don't suppose anyone's ever done that. You blame it on if we had been stationed here. Now, nobody could have asked for finer duty, finer duty. Aboard an aircraft carrier that's tied up stateside, eat meals on board, being served by servants every night if I chose to be there, having a wonderful life doesn't occur to us that all those good things are happening to us because we're too involved with self and what makes self tick. And what made him tick was alcohol and what made me tick was anger and resentment. That's exactly the way I was. He was released from duty after 19 months and we went back to Dallas. He opened an office. I went to work for him in the next five years. We built our first home. We had our two sons. I had always wanted six children. I had never asked him what his thoughts or ideas were on a family. It didn't occur to me that he was a part of this situation. We had two, and I thank God today, because he knew exactly what we needed when we didn't know what we needed. And you know what happened in Dallas in those five years. We did exactly the same thing we'd always done. We partied, we played, we drank, we fought, and we made up. Now, we did not have physical battles in our home, and I think David thanks God to this day, because I told you I'd been an athlete. <laughs> and I'm not a petite, dainty person. Our battles were verbal. And they were destructive. And I stripped this man in the ensuing years of every bit of dignity that he ever had. And I did it knowingly, joyfully. I was going to destroy him if it was the last thing I did. This is during the fighting, you understand. I'm not proud of those days. I'm not proud of many things that I did. Let's stop right here. Keith mentioned it when he started his talk this morning. I have not forgotten one of those words that I used on that man. Every rotten, nasty, profanity word that's ever been coined by man. I don't know where I learned them. 
I did not learn them growing up in my home. I have no idea. But I learned them. And I haven't forgotten them. But I pray to the God of my understanding that he nor anyone else will ever hear me use one of those words from this podium or a podium just like it anywhere else. Because our program is one of dignity and not disgrace. Dignity and not disgrace. We're dealing with a disease. Cunning, baffling, and powerful. My alcoholic was told to sober up shape up when he got here. I was told to clean up and shape up when I got here. And I believed what you told me. And I don't suppose you have that problem up here with profanity. But in our part of the country, we do. I was on a program last weekend with a little gal with 18 years of sobriety. She came in at age 18. Beautiful. Beautiful young lady. Gorgeous clothes lovely face a heck of a story and every other word out of her mouth was profane and I'm so sorry I am so sorry because it does something to me may not mean a darn thing to you but it does to me now I'll get off my soapbox David told me not to get up here and preach During those five years, we had a very successful practice. We had a live-in housekeeper to take care of the children so I could be free to run and play with him and go to work for him and during the day and at night. We partied, we played, we drank, we fought, and we made up night after night after night. And again, it's always so darn much fun making up that you forget about the rotten, nasty things you say to one another the day before or the night before. At the end of five years, we were totally bankrupt in every area of our lives, financially, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, you name it. And Uncle Sam came along to relieve us. David was recalled active duty, and we were delighted. Because, you see, our marriage was, by all intent and purposes, over. And this was a way to get a little bit of breathing space, and just maybe, just maybe, by the time he served the short time that he had to, that when he came back things would be different, not knowing that they don't get different and they don't get better, that they only get worse. And he left with the understanding that the kiddos and I would remain in Dallas. And two weeks later he called to see how soon we could join him in California. Once again, West Coast duty. The house went on the market, the furniture went into storage, the housekeeper was placed with another family, and the kiddos and I headed for California. Because, you see, I needed him, and he needed me. The sick dependency that we have for one another is unbelievable. You know, every one of us in this room could win an Oscar if we were given the opportunity, because we become the greatest actors in the world. People walk up to us, you know, any hour of any day and say, how are you doing now? It may be total disaster in the house. And we look at them and we put that smile on, we face, on our face and we say, everything's just great. It's wonderful. May not have a nickel to buy a bottle of Coke with back then, but we weren't about to let anybody know. How are you doing? Just grand. How's the family? Wonderful. We learned to lie, we learned to cheat, and we learned to steal in here. Blessedly, I did not steal materially. A lot of friends that I have had to. 
I didn't, by the grace of God. But I told you I stole this man's dignity. I stole from my family what they believed in until I got to you people. I lied. Oh, I lied. And then when I realized later on in years what I was doing, that I found out when I told the truth it didn't make any difference anyhow. Because you lie so much to... I lied to my in-laws and they didn't believe me either way, so what difference did it make? What difference? See, I was raised to tell the truth. We, we get so sick. And I thought that, oh boy, did I fight that when I got to you people when they told me I was sick. Wasn't anything wrong with me, thank you very much. He was the one. He was now sober, by golly. I'd go along with him. Real big of me, wasn't it? And that was it. That was it. But not me, thank you. And I did not realize how low down we who love a problem drinker can get until I got to you people. We were in California. We were doing the same thing we'd always done. We partied, played, drank, fought, and made up. We hired a babysitter to take care of the kiddos, and we partied and played every night. And then he was sent to Hawaii on temporary duty, and the kiddos and I stayed behind in the little town in which we were living. And uh, he said, don't worry about anything. He said, I won't be gone long, and I get paid twice a month, and I'll send my check home. And it didn't occur to me that he wouldn't. And it didn't arrive, and, and I called him in Hawaii, and he couldn't understand it because he'd mailed it yesterday. <laughs> and I couldn't understand it. And I waited a little while, and, and I called him back, and it had been mailed yesterday. And it didn't arrive, and I went to the base legal officer, not to get a divorce. I went to embarrass him. Did any of you ever think up here... I'm going to do anything that I possibly can to get even. That's what I was going to do. I was going to show him. If any of you are in the process of doing it now, you're wasting your time. They'll get ahead of us every time. But I went to the base legal officer. He was threatened with a court-martial. He had to sign over an allotment. And just as soon as he got back, I was going to tell him exactly how I felt, and I was leaving. And my phone rang about 3.30 one morning, and you know who. The ship was going to tie up in San Diego, and with the kiddos and I meet him. And I couldn't wait to get the children up dressed in their Sunday best and hook it for San Diego to meet Dad. And we watched him walk off the ship, and he had on his dress blues, and he looked wonderful. And all of that resentment, and all that anger, and all that hate, and disappointment, fear, hopelessness and helplessness that I was feeling and the wonderful thing of poor me why me boo-hoo how could he do this to me went right out into the Pacific well you know it didn't go into the Pacific you and I in this room know where it went it went right down here in this hole down here where it goes and it builds layer by layer by layer until we get here and find out how to get rid of all that stuff. We don't realize it. The illness within us, it's, a, it's, it's horrible. And we think we're just fine, thank you. I told you he had on his dress blues. Now I have to tell you about me, I'm a sucker for a uniform. Always have been, always will be, still am. I see a uniform and I just go brrr. There's just something about it. We went back to the little town in which we were living and we partied and we played and we drank and we fought and we made up. 
and wasn't too long the division that he he was attached to the Marines when he was recalled and uh, he, the Marine division that he was attached to was shipped to the Far East and it was this point in time the children and I moved to Denver to be close to my family we didn't think it would be but a brief period it turned into three years and it was three years of desertion and I'd love to stand up here and show you my halo and my wings but they weren't there and I didn't grow them. There was no way. I probably cried for a week or two. I don't know. You know, again, poor me. Felt so sorry for myself I could hardly stand it. And then the resentment and the anger and the hate and the hurt set in. And I decided I'd get out and I'd show him. And I'd find somebody to rescue me. And that's what I set out to do. Once again, I'm not proud of my way of life. It's just the way it was. I had access to all of the officers' clubs, and I made darn good use of them. Lowry Air Force Base became my favorite hangout, and it was my hangout, and I'd go out and I'd walk into the officers' club, and I'd walk into the bar, and it was a delightful place, and I always felt safe there. And I'd walk in, and there was a short end of the bar here, long end of the bar here, and I always managed to get a stool at the short end of the bar. Now, some of you know why I was there, because it gave me a chance to look you fellas over. And every one of you knew what I was there for. Some of you gals do, because you've shared with me you've done the same thing. It wouldn't be long, and there'd be a drink in front of me, and then pretty soon somebody's standing beside me and they're lighting my cigarette and you're gazing fondly into one another's eyes and you know what happens it's instant love just like that and it didn't take me long to find him oh he was delightful and he was charming and he loved me and he loved my children and he was going to send me to work to Mexico for an illegal divorce and I darn near took him up on it I went to our family physician and his wife who were like second parents to my brothers and me and I told them what I planned to do and and they said honey we understand you know we who love a drunk need that pat on the shoulder and all of the sympathy we can get we need it like we need a hole in our head but God we go looking for it they said we understand and we will go along with you but please first go home get a piece of paper and a pencil and put David on one side and this young man on the other and write down everything you like and dislike about each of them and then make your decision. And I followed their instructions and I did that and you know what I had. I had one in Denver and I had one somewhere in the Far East. Didn't know what they were, but they were exactly alike. I introduced uh, this young man to one of my former classmates and 10 days later they were married. You know what we do. I've seen it happen in all my almost 25 years, time after time after time. I'm going to get rid of that son of, gun, son of a gun, and I'm getting a divorce, and I'm going out and live, and I'll never, ever have another thing in the world to do with an alcoholic. And the first thing you know, you've got a wedding invitation. And the next thing you know, you're sitting in a wedding, and everybody around you is a member of AA and Al-Anon because she's gone out and gotten another drunk or he's gone out and gotten another drunk. We get rid of one, we go get another. I know that that's probably what I would do. I'd go out on the hunt, left alone today. But I can guarantee you one thing, it'd be a sober one, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. At my age, it's a little late to go into training. I've had all I need. 
I went right back out to the officers' club, and this time I really met him. Remember that six-foot-four All-American football player I was looking for way back yonder? There he was, full colonel. Where do you go from colonel? You go to general. And the fantasy set in. Imagination's wonderful. Go from colonel to general. I'll grab a hold of him. I'll be the general's wife. I'll be the greatest hostess the Air Force has ever known. We'll be living on base headquarters. In base headquarters, we'll have servants around the clock. I've got it made in the shade. The one thing I failed to hear the colonel say to me, chose to ignore it, let me put it that way. He had just been shipped back from Korea to do to a drinking problem. Now, all he needed was stability in his life. And here I was. He needed a family, and here our two sons were. And everything would be wonderful, and he wouldn't have a drinking problem any longer. You and I know that doesn't work. Sad to say, the colonel died as a direct result of alcoholism without what you and I in this room have been so blessedly given. This was after David and I got back together. I became frightened of the way I was living. I introduced the, the colonel to a, another friend of mine, and Joni was wise enough not to marry him. I'm grateful for that. I knew that I had not been raised to do the things that I was doing. I was raised to be a lady. I was raised to do the right things for all the right reasons. You know, the white gloves, the hats, the going to the teas and learning to balance food on your laps and all of those wonderful, precious, unuseful things. But that's what I was raised to, to be like. And my family, my both sets of grandparents settled in Colorado in the 1800s. Dad was one of nine, mother was one of seven, my father was internationally known in his field. And my mother was one of the finest ladies I'll ever know and my best friend. And here I was, here I was. No matter where I went with the current romance of the day, I would run in to one or more members of the family and flaunt what I was doing. And never one time did any family member look at me and say, Gracie, you should not, you ought not. You're embarrassing us, you're humiliating us. Shape up. They allowed me the dignity of making my own mistakes, and I'll be eternally grateful for this. When I got to you people many years later and I got to steps eight and nine, you can imagine the amends that I had to make, and they were so many. And I had to go to my family, and I couldn't go to them and say, I'm sorry if you were like I was. I misused those words time after time after time. When you're living with alcoholism, you're sorry for everything. You're sorry for getting up, for going to bed. If you don't get up, if you don't go to bed, whatever it is, you're sorry. But I was able to go to my family, and I was able to say thank you. Thank you for loving me when I was not lovable. Thank you for caring enough to allow me the right to be wrong. This program is so fantastic. So fantastic. I had tried to get a divorce, but because he was out of the country and we did not know where he was, he couldn't be served papers. I knew that just as soon as he returned, then I would take care of this little matter and I would return to the business of living properly. The divorce papers were drawn up in Texas because that was our legal residence. 
and I had them sitting in my home in Denver waiting for him to come back because I knew sooner or later he would and if any of you ever tried to get rid of a drunk you know what I'm talking about they do show up might be a week two weeks two months two years they're going to come back and my phone rang one day and you know who and I hung up phone rang a second time and I hung up and the third time I listened and all he wanted me to do was fly to California and see if we couldn't put this thing back together and there was absolutely no way I was going until the next day I was on a plane on my way to Northern California, divorce papers in hand to serve him, get on a return flight, and get back to living properly. And I arrived in Northern California, and he was standing there in his dress blues. And he looked real good. And we walked into the bar, and we had a drink, and we started talking, and we went further into the city and had a few more drinks and talked some more. And Four days later, I went back to Denver to wait for Dad to be released from active duty to start all over. We went back to Dallas. We opened an office, and we didn't stay there very long. We weren't happy in Dallas, and you know what I'm talking about. And We moved into a small town toward the Texas Panhandle, and we stayed less than a year. And We moved further into the Texas Panhandle to the little town of Memphis, Texas, and we stayed there for eight years. What we were doing was geographic cure, of course. We didn't know that. We didn't know we had alcoholism in our household. We blamed. Did anybody ever blame? We blamed it on everything and everybody, if only. If only we'd done this. If only we had done that. And this is a good one. Yes, but. Yes, but you don't understand. How could anybody else understand when we didn't understand ourselves? This little community that we lived in for eight years was a fantastic place to live. They loved and accepted us just the way we were. There was nothing wrong with me in that community. We lived 89 miles from the closest booze and I hauled it every time we needed it. I would drive 89 miles and I'd bring it back by the case. But I wasn't an enabler, not me. Not only did I bring it back for us, I brought it back for all of our friends who drank. And naturally, all of our friends drank or they wouldn't have been our friends. At the end of eight years, one more time, we were bankrupt in every area of our lives. Maritally, emotionally, mentally, financially, certainly. We didn't have anything going for us. Nothing. And Dave called me one day at home and he said... Uh, from the office and he said I think we ought to move back to Dallas and I said how soon and we were gone <clears throat> pardon me we were gone two weeks later we lied to those beautiful people we told them we were going back to Dallas because his parents needed us they didn't my little father-in-law had retired and he and Graham were doing all the things on retirement they'd ever planned they did not need a drunk son a mixed up daughter-in-law and two confused grand kiddos they got us Today, I thank the God of my understanding that allowed these two people to live long enough to know a sober son, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and see a family putting their lives back together one day at a time through this magnificent fellowship. We still had three more years of drinking. And during those three years, I did everything that anyone in this room has ever thought of doing. If I didn't do it, I thought about doing it. That's when I planned his murder. 
sometimes I planned it many, many nights, lying awake. He was a stay-away-from-home drunk, and he is very fortunate that he was. I came up with a perfect solution for murder. I used to talk about it all the time, and then I quit talking about it for fear someone was sicker than I and might do it. And uh, we were down out of Houston several years ago, and a young man walked up to me and said, you didn't tell about planning David's murder. And I said, no, honey, I don't do that anymore. He said, but you're the reason I'm sober. And I said, uh-uh, I don't 12-step drunks. He said, you 12-step me. I said, I don't understand. He said... Last year when you were in Nederland, Texas, you talked and my wife brought the tape home and I was passed out. And she put the recorder on my pillow and every time I came to, I heard about that. And he said, I haven't had a drink since. <laughs> I'm a firm believer any way you can get us here, get us here. I planned my own suicide. I never planned to kill myself all the way. Uh, all the pharmaceutical detail men back then used to leave cartons of every new medication that ever came on the market. Keith talked about the accessibility to pills this morning. We had anything or everything that anyone could ever want or hope for. Thank God they don't do that anymore. And thank God Dave didn't get into the pills. I did. I'd go over to the office when he wasn't there, which was frequent, and I uh, had no problem. They were all stashed up in the lab, all these boxes, and I'd slit them open, and I'd take what I needed. I knew medication because I'd worked in the office enough, and I had a little private stash at home, and I planned to really use them on him given the opportunity. It didn't ever seem to arise. So one night I was feeling particularly sorry for myself and I sent the kiddos to the grandparents and I overdosed on Carbitel, which was a sleeping pill. I don't even know if it's even manufactured anymore. I knew exactly how much to take. And I came to 24 hours later with the only hangover I've ever had. He hadn't been home and it was a total waste of time. <laughs> A few weeks later, again, you know, poor me, depression, why me? And I sent the kids back to the grandparents. I'd read somewhere, if you turn on the gas, you just go to sleep. Well, I had other ideas. Dave was a cigar smoker. We had an attached garage to the house. And I decided that if I turned on all the gas jets, went back to my room, which was in the back of the house, but when he came in with that cigar, drunk out of his gourd, you know what would happen with a lighted cigar and open gas jets? I got all ready, got everything in order, went to turn on the gas, and our house was all electric. <laughs> Nothing wrong with me, thank you very much. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I stole from him, not only with my mouth, but every way I could. I told you I lied for him all the time. I didn't have an employer to lie to, but I lied to his family. I told you that, and they didn't believe me. And they didn't believe me when I told them the truth. I did not know what was wrong with him. I thought he was insane. I really firmly believed that, and of course, I hope that Tom talks about strangely insane in the morning because I love that definition of us. We are strangely insane.
We can't be not diagnosed as crazy, but we're strangely insane. I loved it, and that's kind of where I was in my thoughts about him, because he was normal over here, abnormal over here, and I was just fine right in the middle. Nothing wrong with me. We get completely and totally powerless, and I had no idea that I didn't have the power to do anything that I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, how I wanted to do it, and where I wanted to do it. I could have left any hour of any day of any week. No one told me I had to stay there. My family would have welcomed me and loved me as they always have and still do. I, I was very gainfully employed. I was self-supporting with my own contributions. I didn't need him. And I have to always remember I chose to stay. Every one of us in this room at this very instant have a choice. I tell the little gals that I sponsor that are having marital problems, whether they're sober, their spouses are sober or drunk, you have a choice. You can live with him and accept the consequences or you can live without him and accept the consequences. It's just that simple. I chose to stay. Now, back then, I thought it was forever. I know today. It's just for today. And I like it that way. I like it that way. I stay just for today. I have no regrets, not any, about having made that choice. I told you earlier, I know what would have happened. I'd have gone out and gotten another drunk. I know what I have with this one. I don't know what in the heck I might get with that next one. I'll hang on to this one. God willing. Well, again, by all intent and purpose, marriage was over. I had told him some six months prior to sobriety that I no longer cared what he did, when, where, how, or with whom, that he was no longer a part of my life, that he was free to go or he was free to stay. And I turned around and walked away. I did not know that that day that I told him that, that I had hit my bottom. You see, I believe we who love the problem drinker have, have our bottoms just as the problem drinker. We can only go down so far, and then we start climbing up or we die. That's what happens. We lose a lot, <coughs> pardon me, of non-alcoholics. I believe I had on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock the most desperate call I have ever had from a prospective Al-Anon member to the point where I got right in the desperation with her. She sounded young on the phone. She has a 19-year-old son, so you know she's young. She's totally alone with no family, no husband. And her son is in Huntsville, which is our hard prison in Dallas, in Texas. And he's due to get out in two months. And he's an addict. He's not a duo. He's an addict. Straight. And she said, I know when he comes out that he's going right back to doing what he was doing. She had no program. She'd been going to therapy and they had not helped her. And you know, our third tradition in Al-Anon tells us that it's for the wives and relatives and friends, rather, of alcoholics, not addicts. 
and yet we don't have an active Naranon program in our area. And I knew this gal needed help, and she needed it better. She was totally hysterical. She is unable to go to work. She's out of money because she spent it all on legal aid for this young man, and he's had no treatment whatsoever. And I said, honey, we have an 8 o'clock Al-Anon meeting. I told her where it was, and they're going to be on the first step tonight. I was unable to go with her that evening. And uh, do you think you can make it on your own? She said, I'm leaving right now. God love her. And she did. And our group enfolded her when she walked in the door. And I talked to her twice on Thursday. She went to a Thursday morning meeting. She was going to a meeting Thursday afternoon. She got the first hope and the first help. And I explained to her that even though we talk about our program being only for alcoholics, until she found help elsewhere, she was welcome in Al-Anon, and I think that's important, because she was as desperate as most of us in this room were when we found this program. I tell that because it's so important that we don't turn our backs on anybody. And I hope and pray that she finds peace of mind and help. I still make 12-step calls, and I pray to God I never stop. That's what keeps me going. Keith talked about the young ones coming in, you bet. You bet. That's the meat of this program. Anyway, my phone rang in my office one day, and you know who, and he said, I know you don't believe me, but I'm going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I said, be my guest, because I told you I didn't care. I had to get to that point where I no longer cared whether he lived or whether he died. And there wasn't a meeting that night. We didn't have all the meetings that we have today. I had a couple of meetings a week. That was it. So he stayed in that evening, and there was no conversation. And the next day he called me back in my office and told me he was going to that meeting, and he got the same response, and I hung up. And that evening when I got home from work, he was dressing and getting ready to walk out the door. Our older son was in university by then, and our younger son finishing high school. And he said, Mom, when Dave walked out there, he said, Do you think Dad really means it? And I said, Honey, we won't know till Dad comes home. And he attended his first meeting April 21, 1967. And he's been coming home ever since. Now, he hadn't had a drink since April 20th of 1967. There was not any instant anything in our home, let me tell you. This is a program of honesty. No instant love, no instant joy, no instant peace, no instant sobriety, and don't misunderstand me. He has not had a drink since the day he called Alcoholics Anonymous. But we don't get sick overnight, and we are not going to get well overnight. We don't hear till we hear, and we don't see till we see. We hang on by our fingernails until this thing begins to work. And we follow the simple directions. One week after he attended his first meeting, he asked me if I'd like to go to an open meeting with him. Now, I hadn't even been speaking to him, and I think I beat him to the car that night. And I'm going to tell you what got me to my first meeting. I said, anyway, you can get us here, get us. You drunks had done something to him in one week that the kids and I had been trying to do for months. You cleaned him up. He'd been changing his clothes every day and taking a shower from the inside out. 
and I wanted to see what you had. And I walked into that open speaker meeting that Friday night and it began a love affair for me that goes to this very second, and I pray it never fades. Because I walked into a room full of happy, warm, laughing people. And laughter. Ken talked about that last night. Aren't we blessed that we learned to laugh again? I hadn't laughed and I cannot tell you when. I hadn't cried either because I swore I'd never shed another tear. And I didn't until I'd been to a few meetings and I was sitting in a meeting one night listening to a drunk talk and tears just started flowing out of something that you don't cry over. I've been crying ever since. I've been laughing ever since. Unbelievable. And on the way home, <coughs> excuse me, we had our first conversation. It was very limited. And on Monday night, he said, how would you like to go to an Al Nunn meeting? And I said, what's that? He said, I have no idea, but I think it's for you. <coughs> and I walked into my first Al Nunn meeting, and I talk about this wherever, whether it's to two or two thousand, doesn't make any difference. Because I don't ever want to forget it. Our program is one of honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness, and every one of us have a responsibility for this. <coughs> it's not a cold, it's allergies, sorry. Anyway, we talk about our experiences. We talk about fear. Nobody walks into this program without fear. We're terrified. Whether we're AA, Al-Anon, or Alateen, we don't know what we're getting into. God, if we did, we'd have been here a long time ago. I walked into a room full of the most pious broads I've ever encountered in my life. <laughs> Those women were so good I wanted to throw up. We didn't have any male Al-Anons back then in our group. We had very few in the whole city. They were sitting there. We had a group over here knitting and needlepointing. I didn't do either one. I needlepoint today, but not in meetings. We had some sitting over here that were so darn excited they could hardly stand it because they had found a new jelly recipe that was real easy to make. At age 68, I have yet to make my first jar of jelly, and I don't plan to start now. Nothing wrong with it. If y'all make jelly, go ahead. They talked about how good they were to those drunks. That they fed them because they didn't want them to go hungry, and I wanted mine to starve to death. They made sure that they were put to bed so they wouldn't wake up on the floor, and I wanted mine dead in the gutter. Honesty open-mindedness and willingness. Let's not pretend. If you were like I was, you pretended all your life till you got here. We don't have to make believe anymore. This is reality. This is reality. I want you to know I went to that group four years because I didn't know I could go anywhere else. We don't hear till we hear, right? I read everything I could read on the program. I mentioned at the very beginning, thank God for the woman drunk. She's the reason I'm still here. My first sponsor is now 35 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and one of the most beautiful people that will ever be a part of my life, and Chris is. She gave me my first big book, 
of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love the big book, and I don't sponsor anybody that doesn't read the first 164 pages. Because as a non-alcoholic, there's no way I can ever look at a drunk and say, I know how you feel. But this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me about the problem drinker and how I can better understand how to live with alcoholism. And in case some of you don't know it, there are two chapters in there addressed to me, chapters 8 and 9, to the wives and the family afterwards. So I suggest if you haven't read, read the big book, read it. You're in for a treat, a great big treat. Chris told me I was going to keep going to these meetings if she had to drag me. Now you understand she's never been to an Al-Anon meeting except to hear me talk. That's the only time. But she knew what I needed. And I said, but Chris, I don't want to be in that Al-Anon room with all those sick, pious people. I want to be in Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, okay. Read the first page in chapter four, and if you fit, I'll give you a chip. Monday night. I said, oh, great. And I opened up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the first page of chapter four. And it says, if you honestly want to and cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount that you take, you're probably alcoholic. Chris said, okay. You ready? I couldn't go in and lie because I knew I wasn't. I've already told you that. I never had to have a drink in my life. I never wanted a drink in my life. And when I decided to quit, I decided to quit. That's all to it. I had to keep going to those sappy meetings. And I went with teeth gritted and looked forward to the open speaker meetings and every conference that we could get to. And in 1971, David and I were in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, Canada. There was a wonderful man from Raleigh, North Carolina that I have come to love very, very dearly talking that night. And I had heard him previously twice, but I hadn't heard him until that Saturday night. And Dave Snee said, if you don't think your group's the best, get yourself another. It's keeping it pretty simple, isn't it? And on the plane going back, I told David I wasn't going back to that meeting. And he said, where are you going to go, honey? And I said, I don't know. I'll go to Preston. If that doesn't work, I'll try another and another until I'm comfortable. <clears throat> the following Monday night, I walked into the Preston group, and I've been home ever since. I walked into a group of honest, open-minded, willing people, willing to share their experience, strength, hope, their fears, and all the things that we need to share with one another. And I got an Al-Anon sponsor, and without a doubt, one of the most gentle, positive, beautiful women I have ever known. And my Bonnie has Alzheimer's to now, has Alzheimer's today, and she doesn't know anything or anybody. But for 28 years, she gave of herself to us in every way possible. And I know a few years ago I'd come back from a pr pretty harrowing conference weekend where you miss your connections and all those fun things happen. And I was so tired and I said, Bonnie, how much longer do I have to do this? And she said, honey, as long as they keep asking because you are responsible. So this old broad standing up here just keeps on going every time I'm asked. And I love it. I love it because I'm trying to give back, as Ken said last night to pass it on.
what's been given to me. I've been in that group a short time when I was asked to be an Alateen sponsor, and I didn't know a thing world about Alateen. They weren't allowed in that group I'd come from. They weren't even allowed to walk in the doors of the club facility. And I said, oh, no, not me. And the chairman at that time is now in her 80s, and I want you to know she's as tough a gal today as she was then. She looked at me, and she said, you don't say no in Al-Anon. God, it scared me to death. And I said, Okay. And for the next six years, I had the tremendous privilege of sponsoring Alateen. And you know, I talked about falling in and out of love way back yonder. Those kids are the ones that taught me about love. Loving for free with no strings attached. Unconditional love. I didn't know way back then when I thought I was in love, I was in heat. God, I know about those things. <laughs> those kids are so wise. They're so wise. They love and understand the alcoholic. It's me they don't understand. We're stark, raven, sober. Stark, raven, sober. Those two sons of ours are men today, and I'm completely awed by both of them. I really am, because they grew up in such a sick, sick home. Neither one of them drink, neither one of them smoke. Our older son is a Fulbright awardee. He is an attorney. He practices in Washington, D.C., and some 12 years ago he gave us the daughter we always wanted. They were married in Santiago, Chile, and I was able to attend the wedding. And I couldn't love Anita anymore if I'd had her myself. Could not love her anymore. She's, we're just the best friends. I just came back from there two weeks ago, and we have the grandest time together. They're just super, super people. And eight years ago, they gave us Abigail, our first granddaughter. And then two years ago, they gave us her baby sister. You know, it's just unbelievable. We're old enough to be great-grandparents, and here we are just getting to be grandma and grandpa. And I see kiddos at these meetings, and I go bonkers. I want to, you know, grab them all, these little ones, and play grandma to all of them. It's just grand. Our younger son lives in Singapore and he's had a very interesting life. He's a very, very fine young man and he's an executive vice president of the company he works for. He's been based in the Orient for nine years, going on ten. I guess it's ten already. He's very, very successful. He was a bachelor. He kept saying, Mom, don't worry, one of these days I'm going to get married. And I'd say, but when? Well, he finally did it a year ago this past January at age 42. And he married a little gal. She's big as a minute, wears a size four. You gals know how tiny that is. She's about five foot two and Donnie's six foot. And she is from Iraq. Now, our first daughter-in-law is from Santiago, Chile. And here is little Susan, who is an Iraqi, although she was born in England and grew up in Kuwait, where her father was an engineer, and then they ultimately retired to Australia, which is where Donnie met her. And she's delightful. She's absolutely delightful. And they chose to be married in Dallas, which just blew my mind and excited me because I didn't want to travel 25, fly 25 hours, but I would have, you know. And her family came and friends came from all over the world, and we had a UN wedding, what can I say? We have a United Nations family. You know, I told you I'd always wanted six kiddos, and the answer to prayer is yes, no, and you got to be kidding. 
Well, let me tell you, I've got those six kiddos today. The two sons, the two daughters-in-law, and the two grandbabies. And what more could you ask for? When we arrive here, we become. We become willing to do something. Do something. To go to any length, hopefully, to get this program. And after we're here a while, we begin to believe in a power greater than ourselves who will restore us to sound thinking and sound judgment. And then we wake up one morning and we find we belong. We belong to a fellowship that's indescribably wonderful. Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, and Alateen. Wake up with that feeling. I did, I have, and I do. Thank you, and God bless you.